Our Father, as we come to your scripture, we ask once again that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts because we know that the scriptures are sufficient unto every good work, that they are God-breathed, they are infallible, they are the absolute authority. So we ask that you would give us insight and illuminate our hearts and bring us into ever closer conformity with that scripture. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, tonight we're going to review some of the unfinished business from last time on the atonement with this handout, uh, special handout. And then, um, but before we get to there, I, I've been listening to a debate um, between an evangelical Christian, a Jewish rabbi, and a representative of Islam. And I've emphasized in this Thursday class uh, the importance of a framework and of seeing uh, these events and these doctrines. I've also emphasized that diagram that we've drawn so many times up here of the uh, enveloping frame of reference and how whenever you dialogue with somebody, um, no matter what you talk about, it will be ensconced in some sort of belief framework, belief frame of reference. So I've asked, uh, I'm going to ask Tommy if he'll play uh, a few moments in the middle of this debate when this Islamic, and it, you have to listen to it because he talks with a roof of his mouth, I think he's a Pakistani. So just be aware of the, of the accent. But uh, at this point in the discussion, he is uh, outlining the differences between Islam and Christianity. And what you're going to hear is a, a um, typically Islamic treatment. This is how they view Christianity. And since this is a class in which we've gone through the birth, the life, and the death of Christ, and remember each part of these events in his life we've shown there's a cluster of truths associated with that that with the birth of Jesus Christ we're back to the philosophy, uh, the doctrines of God, man, and nature and with the life of Christ we're dealing with revelation and you remember in the notes that each one of these events um, produces a response and we either accept it or we reject it and I've tried to show the ideas behind this acceptance or rejectance. And remember what, as we go back to the birth of Christ, the Bible reports that it was a virgin birth, etc., etc. And um, you remember the Jewish reaction was that Jesus was illegitimate. And the Gentile reaction was, it couldn't have happened. And what do we say both of those rejections show? They both show a commitment to naturalism and paganism and the idea that there isn't a supernatural intervention into, into the universe. And then when we got to Jesus' life, we said, there's a reaction. You remember so what the reaction was? That all these reports of Jesus' life was just the spin doctors of the early church. That it wasn't Jesus. What we're reading here isn't the real Jesus. This is what the church thought about Jesus. So, 
it was a method that unbelief has of taking the clear word of God, using the nouns and verbs that are in it, and totally neutralizing it by, by covering it up and absorbing it inside of a foreign frame of reference. So I've deliberately picked, it won't be more than four or five minutes here, but I've deliberately picked out four or five minutes in the middle of this Islamic, Judaic, Christian discussion to isolate where this representative of Islam treats the difference between Islam and Christianity. And in this particular section, he's outlining quickly what they believe about Jesus Christ. Because on the surface, Islam appears to honor Jesus. They say, well, you know, we're just a continuation. We believe Jesus was a prophet. Um, we accept the fact that he was a prophet, etc., etc., just that Muhammad is the last and final prophet. And he sort of corrected all the errors that crept in. This will also give you insight into how they handle the fact, which you may wonder about, if Islam sees the Koran as the fulfillment of the Old and New Testaments, and the Koran and the Old and New Testaments clash over particulars, well, how do they handle that? Well, they handle it by simply dismissing the contradictory passages in the Old and New Testament by saying these are the result of corruptions. And so the Koran is, is God's uh, coming down to earth to make sure, through Muhammad speaking, um, to correct the corruptions of the Old and New Testament. So in effect, they've neutralized the Old and New Testaments and the Old and New Testament, even though they say they respect them, um, since they can't define what the original is, apart from the Koran, in effect, the basis of authority has moved from the Old and New Testament over to the Koran. Now, you'll see this technique used with the Mormons. You'll see it used with the Jehovah's Witnesses. You'll see it used with Christian Science. You'll always see it. It's always moving the, for the authority from Scripture to something else. So I want uh, Tommy to play this for a few minutes. And just, just listen. It'll be a little hard because of the accent, but pick up just the general themes that they're, they're the life of Christ. compromise the monotheism of the, of the Old Testament, and it takes Islam to correct that error in Christianity. So, I'm, I'm just playing this, because this is the real world. I mean, there's, there's a, you know, a third of the world is Muslim now, almost. So, if you're a Christian, you better realize that this is, this is an objection, and what are you going to do, and what are you going to answer to it? And... Remember, we spent a lot of time last year on the Trinity. Remember we had an appendix, Appendix A, in, in the notes? That's why that appendix is in there. And if you look at the appendix, remember we said it was in terms of unity and diversity within God? So that we said we believe in one God, but there's unity and diversity within God, the creator-creature distinction. And that if you did not have diversity inside the Godhead, then who was the object 
of God's love before he created the universe. And that's the dilemma of Judaism in it, is that Allah doesn't have an eternal object of his love and therefore doesn't exercise his love. And it's, it's interesting uh, that the Christian position, as Jesus prayed in John 17, that, Father, you loved me, when? Before the foundation of the world. Love was being exercised prior to the creation. Is that possible with solitary monotheism? No. And if it's not possible with solitary monotheism, then doesn't that also imply uh, that in some way God needs the creation in order to fulfill himself? Whereas if we have a trinity, we have unity and diversity within the Godhead, God is not under the obligation to ha create something that loves him back, kind of, because he's already self-contained. So, it's false that the Trinity negates monotheism. But, as Christians, you want to be aware that that is what Jews and Muslims think about you. That you, have you are a compromiser to the biblical monotheism. And therefore, you can't back up and apologize, and you better have some way of explaining what you mean when you say you believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but that, in fact, you are a monotheist. One, one easy approach is to simply say that all the authors of the New Testament were monotheistic Jews, were they not? Maybe Luke was a Gentile. But the idea is, weren't the authors of the New Testament monotheistic Jews? Yeah. Well, then how come, as monotheistic Jews, they didn't see a problem? They were good Jews, by the way. They didn't see a problem with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They didn't see a problem in the deity of Jesus. Now, why is it that they didn't see a problem? What do we say in Appendix A? Remember, we went back into the Old Testament and we said there's a diversity of God present already in the Old Testament, before Jesus. Remember, we sh showed some passages. Remember Psalm 110? The Lord said to my Lord. What's David talking about there? Remember in Genesis 1? Let us create man in our image. Who's the our? Who's the us there? Not angels. God doesn't create men in angels' images. He creates them in his own image. So... The point is that the Trinity is but an enlarged development and a refinement of the unity and diversity already present in the Old Testament text. Okay, that was his first point. His second point, and I wonder how many of you caught it, was the Incarnation. How did he define the Incarnation? Anybody hear, hear it? It was totally backwards. He said, quote, The Incarnation is... Man becoming God, an idea that was prevalent in the Greco-Roman world. Now, is he right in the sense that in the Greco-Roman world, there were men, uh, men and gods, gods with a little g? Yeah. It's always been true in paganism. But now look. Look at the enveloping frame of reference and how it works. Here is a fact. The fact is that, yes, in the Greco-Roman world... There are 
pagan gods and goddesses that are kind of half man, half uh, human, and half God. That's factual. But what's wrong with a statement that the incarnation is man becoming God? Anybody see what's wrong with that statement? It's exactly backwards. What does the New Testament say? God became man. So see? So, so you've got to watch it, and then it gets back to these little subtleties. We've got to learn to be good listeners and not to just blurt out something until we really have listened and understand where the people are coming from. Otherwise, we're talking like this, and it's just a total waste of time. So we have to pick up on these things. We have to say to ourselves, Lord, let me understand where is this person coming from before I pontificate some stupid remark that I'm going to later regret. Let me listen to what the people are saying. So here he is. He has this image that we say that the incarnation is a man who becomes God. Now, when did Jesus become God? If he was born a virgin, was he God in the womb? Was he God in the baby? Yeah. Well, what, there's no point where Jesus, as a man, became God. Remember, we went through 400 years of church history. We got to the hypostatic union. Remember I said, he is undiminished deity, true humanity, united in one person forever without confusion. And remember we said that we worked our way through Arianism, Nestorianism. We have that little chart in, I think, the second chapter of your notes. And in that chart, the church did consider the idea that Jesus might have been a man on whom the Spirit of God came. That was one of the heresies, and it was thrown out, pitched. If there was anything that did not come from the contemporary culture, it's the idea of the Trinity and the Incarnation. It took 400 years to bring that whole frame of reference into existence because it wasn't there in the culture. So, Trinity, Incarnation. God became man, not man became God. Then the third thing, is, which is what we're just talking about. What does he say about the atonement? Do Muslims believe in the atonement? No. They say they respect Jesus, though. How do you reconcile the fact that they respect Jesus, but they don't buy the atonement? Must be talking about a different Jesus than the Jesus I know through the New Testament text. It's sort of like, well, the real Jesus. Which Jesus are we talking about? They're talking about a reconstructed Jesus. Having read the New Testament, they then re revise the New Testament in the light of the Koran and then say, yeah, we respect that Jesus. That's like the liberals today in the college classroom. Higher criticism. Time magazine, U.S. News every Christmas. Now, you know, we're approaching Easter. You watch. There'll be another big article about... You know, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Like, you know, we have to check that out now. You know, if somebody took a videotape of the tomb, got it all on tape, see, and if they didn't get it on tape, then he didn't do it. That sort of, kind of a silly kind of thinking. But that's the kind of, that's what the world believes, and we need to know that's how they approach things. So the atonement, what do we say was the key idea in this chapter? We're right in here. 
Now, this tells you something about, this is why you want to learn to think this way. If you don't pick up anything in these Thursday night classes, it's a method of thinking. A method of thinking through the scripture. And every one of these places, there's a big idea. And what was the big idea behind the death of Jesus Christ? The issue of justice. Now, if a person doesn't get the atonement, what do you immediately know is screwed up? whole idea of justice. Because if Jesus' atonement is not accepted, and we're not going to deal in terms of sin and atonement, then how are we going to deal with sin? What does every religion, every religion, everyone, apart from biblical Christianity, what do they do with sin? Let's think about that. Every Christian heresy basically does the same thing, except not so blatantly, maybe. But if you deny the atonement, you're denying the fact that justice is restitutionary. If you deny the atonement, you're, you could be denying that you're a sinner. Don't need an atonement. Well, most people aren't quite that blatant. Yeah, I, I fall short. So, if you fall short, but you deny the atonement, then what's your solution to the problem? Well, do meritorious works as best you can, and then trust God to forgive the rest. That's basically all the religions of the world, right there. Now, he, in a later point, I tried to find it today, and I couldn't find it. Later on, he's challenged by the Christian guy here. And uh, he comes right out and says, you know, you Christians, yak yak about this atonement thing. Oh, we Muslims don't believe it. And nobody has to die for somebody else's sin. You do the best you can with your sin. You don't palm it off on somebody else. You take responsibility for your sin. And you do good works. And the more good works you do, the, the more chance you have that Allah will forgive you. Now... That sounds all nice until you start thinking about it. If we don't need an atonement, then one of two things must be true. Either we're not sinners and don't need an atonement, or that God forgives without a blood atonement. In which case, haven't you made two very dogmatic statements? This can be said in the, in the greasy, kind of slimy way, and it comes off to the average audience like, this is really cool. This real, I mean, this, is, this sounds great. And then you start backing off and you say, wait a minute, what are they saying? They're saying that they're not sinners? Well, no, 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 we're not saying that. We're just saying, you know, you, you can't be perfect and God will forgive you. If you take that position, then God will forgive you just because you're a good boy. What have you done to God's justice? Let's go to Romans 3 again. I mean, Paul should have, should have uh, not had to have coped with this big theological problem here. 
in verses 25 and 26 of Romans chapter 3. It was totally unnecessary to even worry about it, Paul. Paul says in, in 25, whom God displayed public propitiation in his blood through faith, that was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. See? There's God. He's, he's forgiven people. But what does that do? That sets up a dilemma. In verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, come on, fellas. You know, if, he, if God is just and he forgives, how do you explain that? You know, there's no, nobody answers that question. The Bible says the only way you can preserve the justice of God and at the same time get forgiveness is by substitutionary blood atonement. And people act like this is some new, super, New Testament, right-wing, fundamentalist truth here. What happened in the garden? How did the first animal get killed in Eden? Blood atonement. Is that New Testament? No. What did Abraham do before the Abrahamic Covenant? What was he instructed to do? Slaughter animals? And he went to sleep with the Abrahamic Covenant? Was that New Testament? No. What happened in the Exodus? What did they put in the doors? So the angel of death would pass over. Wasn't that blood? No. Okay, then how come you're saying that the New Testament introduces a new idea? That's not a new idea, is it? See? So, the modern Jewish Judaism, I won't say Jewish person, this is Hebrew Christians. In modern Judaism and Islam, they've got the, the only way they can deal with this is ultimately either cancel this and weaken it, or they go to a hopelessness. Because how do you have assurance in your conscience that in the day of judgment, you will stand. How do you get that assurance? And that's why I spent considerable time last week when we have in this appendix back here, if you, if, you, if you look at it, in appendix C, on page 6, I made a big point about this. Uh, and again, don't worry if, if about these details in the sense of trying to remember them all. It's It's... It's becoming aware that the Bible's truths fit together. That's one of the authentic signs of its truthfulness. And in page um, 6, remember we were talking about the debate in, in Geneva. And in that first major paragraph on page 6, it says, I'll just if you'll follow with me, another example is the tendency of the later reformers to alter Luther's and Calvin's teaching on faith. Catholicism counterattacked the original teaching of Luther and Calvin that faith was assurance as an incentive to loose living. To defend Protestantism, the later reformers began to argue that we cannot be assured that we have believed unto salvation unless there are evidences of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, and so forth. The original reformers caught the idea that at the initial microsecond of the fact that you exercise saving faith, you've got assurance you're accepted. 
Why else would you turn to a holy God without your sunglasses on? How can you face a holy God unless you have assurance? So you've got to have assurance at the first step, not the second, third, fourth, or the 23rd. You can't wait to get down there because you can't get close enough to God to start with. If you believe and are convinced that you're a sinner before a holy, righteous God, how do you solve that problem? Unless up front you have the assurance of forgiveness. And once we have the assurance of forgiveness, what is our motive then? In Christianity, the motive is thankfulness for what God has done for me. In all other religions, what is the motive? It can't be thankfulness because they don't have assurance that he did anything. So, what, is the, what becomes the motive? What must become the motive? Even if you don't read the Koran or anything else, what can you guess must be, just thinking through this whole thing, what must be the motive in every religion? Self-justification. Based on the vague hope that your personal good works are going to get you assurance. You're always chasing, chasing the carrot here. You never eat it. It's always out in front of you on a stick. Because you're never assured that you have the, have, have the righteousness of God. Because what happens? What was Luther's experience as a monk? Every time he looked at his heart, what did he say? Sin. So you can look inside and check if the Holy Spirit was working inside. Because the Holy Spirit might have been working inside, but there's still sin inside. So you can't look at yourself and gain assurance. Therefore, what did Calvin and Luther both counsel the church to do? Look at him. Look out of yourself at Jesus Christ. That's how you get the assurance. So, we've gone through an assault on the Christian faith. You can see that in one fell swoop, the, the Muslim tried to attack here, he attacked here, and he attacked here. didn't attack the resurrection, didn't get into that. But look what he attacked. The birth, the life, and the death of Jesus. He attacked the birth because he said the incarnation was man trying to become God. And, that, and that's just the Christians compromise. They heard that on the streets of Greece and Rome. And it was just an idea, you know, everybody's talking about it. It was on the six o'clock news all every night. So that came into their thinking. And that's where we got the incarnation from. So, that eliminates the whole idea of the birth of Christ, which means that in order to do that, they don't have a clear concept of God and man. He attacked the life of Jesus because he kept saying, if you remember, what did he say? All these things were added later. They were put into the mouth of Jesus. See, that's exactly what your higher critical professor would do in a college classroom. What we're reading here, this isn't, this isn't Jesus' words. This is the church's words about this guy that they later deified. And then he attacked the death of Christ as being unnecessary. Why have an atonement? Okay, so just a real-life illustration. Millions of people believe what you just heard. Millions of people believed. And they're coming in like a flood in this country. The prison system has been all largely captured already in America by Islam. Now, we have to start asking ourselves, why is this? 
Why is Islam coming in like a flood? Why is this other thing true? Why is it that once a land historically goes Muslim, we have never seen an example that I am aware of in church history of it ever reverting back to Christianity. Once a land is lost to Islam, it never recovers. That's why if you were here Sunday night when we heard the, the Iranian, the lady that is that book over there, that's what's so exciting about Iran. Iran may be the first country that overthrows Islam. As amazing as that may seem. There is a powerful movement in Europe among Iranians in the, in the expatriate community uh, back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an amazing story. This woman was the daughter of one of the leading mullahs. Not only that, he was a systematic theologian that teaches them all. And how did she become a Christian? Because somebody handed her a track on the street? No. Because she was right smack dab in a Muslim library and looked under the table, saw a book, and it was a Bible in Persian. And you see God, hey, put, put a, get, get, get that Bible to that girl. I'll bet you an angel put that there. And she picked it up, read it, and then wondered why. Hey, you know what? God can speak in Persian. I'm a Persian. I'm not an Arab. Why do I have to know Arabic to come to Allah? Good question, lady. And you know what led her to Christ? She said, God, how come, if you're all-powerful, you can't learn Persian? How come you can only speak in Arabic? You know, you've got a problem with your language here? What's going on? And through that kind of reasoning, she was brought to Jesus Christ. So, that might be a case. But generally speaking, everywhere that Christianity has become weak... Islam is right there at the door to take over. Now, let's ask why. Let's take a simple illustration why. Let's go to a jail. Let's look at the people that are in the jail. Basically, there's, there's always going to be a small percent of people that shouldn't be there. But largely speaking, in our present prison system, there are people who have a cruddy lifestyle by their choice, they're losers. You think they have great self-image? No. Have they known stability, most of them? Probably not. Probably not. What does Islam offer them? Pride. Discipline. Absolute truth. Ooh, never heard that one before. And they come in and they win them one by one in the prison. It goes right down the cell block. Boom, 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 boom. You watch on, on the Friday night when the Muslims meet hundreds of them in the chapels. Saturday morning, a few Christians. What does that tell you? It caters to a need in our society that where Christianity has been rejected or the church has become weak and has refused to adhere to the authority of the absolute laws of Scripture and where the church has not disciplined itself and has been weak, Islam comes in and says, we will not compromise. Do they deal with drugs? Yeah. You know what they do in a Muslim land with druggies? They don't have a drug problem. They kill the people. Not only that, they execute them so everybody can see it. 
Is that appealing to a society in chaos? You bet. So just remember, Satan always has either licentiousness to tear down structures, and when he's pushed that ball as far as he can push, and everybody's discouraged, and they see it doesn't work, what is the next thing he trots out? Boom! I got absolute truth over here. This is Operation Bootstrap. Have pride in yourself. You can generate your own self-will and your self-merit. You can be the man God wants you to be. That kind of thing. And, that, and the prisoners are buying that like crazy. Do you know, in prison, these guys that can hardly read English, you know what the Muslims have them doing? Learning Arabic script. So they can read the Koran in Arabic. You can't even get them to read English. But they'll read Arabic. Imagine going into, into a prison and trying to teach Greek and Hebrew. Oh, that's too tough. But the Muslims can come in and teach Arabic. So, you know, we ought to be rebuked by some of this stuff that goes on. I mean, it makes a mockery of some of the stuff that we do. And Christian thinks it's so hard. Sniff, sniff. And look at what they do with their training. And they're winning, sad to say. They are winning the ground. And they're doing it because they appeal to order, law, discipline, and good works. It's going to sell, particularly in a licentious generation. All right. But the bottom line is it's self-will and self-propelled righteousness. So if you go to that, that handout that uh, my wife handed you tonight, um, before the, the first page, before we get to the resurrection... We want to review a few points from last time. I'm going to try to, to pull that together. And I, I preface this by saying, all this time over this, these last three or four years, I've tried to emphasize this framework, and I want to in particular remind you of this, and that's why on this sheet I've put in bold font at least three events, or I put in five or six events, because you've got to learn to think back and anchor your thoughts in the scriptures surrounding these great events, and be convinced that these actually happened. This is not just a book. This is actual history that happened. So let's go through these six points uh, tonight before we, we, um, we'll try to summarize what we're trying to say about the atonement. Point one, we begin with creation. Why do we begin with creation? We always begin with creation. Creator, creature, distinction. We begin also with the birth and life of the king because it's his death. A death of whom? The one who was born this way and lived this way. So we go fall back onto these things. This is the ground on which we stand. What does that mean? Practically, it says that the created creature distinction and man made in God's image. Those are two big ideas. And whatever we say about the atonement or anything else, we know those to be true. So, however we look at the atonement, it's got to fit with that basic structure. The creator creature distinction and man made in God's image. Therefore, Human choice is a finite analog of divine sovereignty. 
They are alike, but they are not identical. And because they are not identical, they're not on the same plane and therefore cannot come into con co collision. These are trains operating on two tracks. It's not a head-on collision of two trains on the same track. Create a creature distinction. You can't have a conflict between human choice and divine sovereignty. They're two different levels of being. Jesus Christ, God and man in one person, shows perfect compatibility of the two. Was there stress and strain? Was Jesus a secret schizophrenic because he was God and sovereign and a man with choice? The very fact that we could get God and man together in one person shows there is not an inherent conflict between the two. Now, however we explain it, I mean, we don't know how to totally explain it. But this is how I personally go about thinking about it. I start with these ideas that I know are very obvious from the scripture. And I push them, and I push them, and I push them to the logical conclusion. And it is that I don't see how you, get a, you can get, get a conflict going if the trains aren't on the same track. But I know that not only the trains are on the same track, but the two trains and the two tracks are perfectly compatible. And how do I know that? Because God and man walked around as one person. Hypostatic union. Man created to produce good works. That means historical righteousness born of obedience. Did Adam and Eve, want, at the point they were created, did they have a record of obedience? No. Were they given a choice? Were they given a test? Yes. How would they have gained a record of obedience? By obeying. By responding. And that takes time, which means that it takes history. That takes historical experience. And man was created to subdue the earth, but that is an act, the subduing the earth is an act to obey the commands to do the earth. Right? And if it's obedience to a command that says subdue the earth, and I subdue the earth because I'm being obedient to the command, then besides subduing the earth, what am I doing? I'm obediently subduing the earth. So, ultimately, I'm obeying which is a historic act of righteousness. So man was created in order to generate historic righteousness. Now, has anybody generated historic righteousness since the fall? Not except apart from God's grace. Has there ever been a perfect person created, that has obeyed perfectly? Yes, there has been. The Lord Jesus Christ. Is therefore there any other source of righteousness around? Any other source in history of righteousness? None. Because Jesus is the only one that obeyed perfectly. That's why his historic life is so important. That's why the pages of the New Testament must be inerrant. If that record's wrong, as the, our Muslim friend says, that these are words put into Jesus' mouth by later spin doctors in the church, then we haven't got a record of righteousness. We're still fumbling around. Okay. Man created to produce good works. Christ's impeccability shows how genuine temptation, and that's why I went all through that impeccability issue. Genuine temptation coexists with God's sovereign will. It was impossible that Jesus Christ fall, but the temptation to fall was real. 
Now, you can't get those perfectly together, but you can prove they don't conflict. That's a weaker condition. They do not conflict. That's weaker than saying, I totally understand all of it. I can't do that as a Christian. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Now, the point that we want to make here is that we don't start with pagan philosophical categories of causation, which Christians bring into the discussion all the time, like this this universal thing called causation. No, there isn't. Any universal causation, that's borrowed from Aristotle, that try to include both God and man together. Both God and man, this causation thing. We, how can God cause something and man cause something, see? Now you're treating cause meaning the same thing with God as the uh, subject of the noun, uh, subject of the verb, and man as the subject of the verb. But if you do that, you've already denied the creator-creature distinction. So that's the whole point of point one. You begin with the creation to establish that difference so you don't get a head-on collision. You start with the birth and life of the king to show there actually occurred in history, whether we can explain it or not, the Lord Jesus Christ went around and was genuinely tested like as we are, yet without sin, and had real human choice. Yet it was his perfect mission to do the Father's will. And he succeeded. Point two, because the death of Christ involves atonement. Where do we go to see God's wrath and his judgment? Remember the two events? Well, two events, the flood and the exodus. With a fall, of course, to introduce sin, and the flood and the exodus to deal with sin. Remember our diagram? What, what, we, what do we say the flood does? It shows judgment and salvation. What does exodus do? Show judgment and salvation. What is true of both of those instances? God was grace before judgment. Yes? He was, he was calling the people, gave them warning, 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 just like he's doing now. And then, boom, the judgment came. And it came quickly, did it not? The flood came quickly. You see, the floods in Mozambique, they come quickly. And the flood that destroyed this planet once came quickly. So... God's judgment, just because it is postponed, doesn't mean that when it comes, it doesn't come quickly. So the flood and the exodus both involved what? After the, uh, after the flood, what did Noah do? First act, off the ark. Sacrifice. Blood atonement. Had to set up a covenant. Can't make a covenant with the holy God. Can't do business with God if you don't have the blood atonement. He's not signing that paper. None of this bloodless, geez, I, I forgive you kind of stuff. Because every covenant in the scriptures, God enters by blood. Every one of them. I mean, here's this Islam guy. What's he going to do? He, he basically has to strip out every single one of the covenants of scripture. They're all grounded in blood. Well, we don't believe in atonement. <laughs> well, evil begins with rebellion and disobedience. Evil brings on death and chaos in spite of the creature's urge to be productive. Evil is bracketed in the biblical worldview by God's sovereign plan, so it will eventually be divided permanently from the good. This division involved interlinked judgment and salvation shown by the flood and the exodus. God's justice requires restitution of life which occurs by blood atonement and no other way. Okay, point three. Now we get to the more closer in. Judge, atonement and judgment. The fall flood exodus model 
shows that the atonement delivers through judgment. Remember, you can't have what without what? You can't have salvation if you don't have judgment. Why is that? Because good and evil are together, and what is God going to do? Rip them apart. And when he rips them apart, that's judgment. Pardon the word, but it's discrimination. He discriminates good from evil. So, John 3, 6, uh, 3, 16 and 21 shows that because of the atonement, the basis of condemnation for all people has shifted from being sinners without an extended pardon to being sinners who, in addition to being sinners, also reject the pardon made possible by the sacrifice of the only begotten Son. Why are men condemned now? Because they believe not. If, if, if there's a genuine pardon extended, a genuine pardon extended, and this person rejects the pardon, why do they go to hell? Because they rejected the pardon. But think of what this does to the atonement issue. It's got to be a genuine pardon. A genuine pardon. If it's not a genuine pardon, it doesn't change his status. If I come up to that person and say, well, don't know whether you're elect or not elect, but uh, if you are elect, this is for you. That's not exchanging a genuine pardon. There's got to be a genuine pardon extended, meaning that it has to be, the atonement has to be sufficient to save everyone. Of course, the Reformed Church believes that in their creeds, that good, good Reformed people that know what they're talking about and not the amateurs, know that within Reformed theology they are saying that the atonement is sufficient for all if they would believe. So, that's important. Very important. Otherwise, you don't have a genuine offer. Okay. <clears throat> Thus, the judgmental side of the atonement... Now, here's where we start to get into some... this limited, unlimited business. Last sentence, point three. mental side is because you rejected the pardon that's why you go to hell because you rejected the pardon that God was offering through his atonement that's why you're condemned forever so the judgmental side of the atonement extends to all who disbelieve it does so because it is sufficient to save all men including those who disbelieve John 2 2 he is the propitiation and what does it say? Not for us only, but also for the sins of the whole world. First John 2, 2. And remember I showed you from the writers of the Reformers, the, Re the Reformation era, they knew that verse, and they were using it. First John 2, 2. Okay, now let's come to the atonement and salvation. Point three, atonement and judgment. Point four, atonement and salvation. Why do I have judgment and salvation? Because of the model in, in, in the point two. We're just carrying out the model. You have to have judgment and salvation together. Atonement and salvation. The fall flood exodus model shows the atonement delivers through judgment. So it doesn't just judge, it also delivers through judgment. Romans 3, 25 to 26 shows that the atonement 
resolves the apparent Old Testament conflict between God's holiness and His gracious love. God can forgive sin without compromising His holiness now. It frees God, as it were, to forgive sin without compromising His holiness. That's what the cross does on God's side. Romans 3.25-26 also shows the saving side of the atonement extends to all who believe. Now notice the difference. There's an asymmetry here. Point three. In an unlimited sense, the atonement condemns all men. Point four. In the limited sense, it saves only those who believe. It doesn't save those who don't believe. It's not unlimited that way. It's limited to those who believe. Okay, let's go now to the call of Abraham. Because now we come out, well, if it is limited to only those who believe, who controls who those believe? Right? If the atonement is limited to only those who believe, the next question is, why is it some believe and some don't? So now that's what shapes the limitedness of the atonement, does it not? The boundary of belief and not belief. So we, that's why we go to the call of Abraham. Why do we go to the call of Abraham? Election, justification, and faith. We've got to look at that, that story of Abraham and think to ourselves, God, what did you do when you called Abraham out? Let me see if I, I get this right. What did you do? How did you work? What does your scripture say when you called Abraham to, to hit the mission in life? The extent of the atonement is wrapped up with the issue of saving faith. How does saving faith originate? God's call to Adam and his wife after they fell while hiding in the garden shows his initiating gracious calling to faith extended to sinners. The very first picture of Scripture. Again, think about it. Adam and Eve, here they are, they're hiding in the bushes. Who started the conversation? God did. Were they start, did they want to start the conversation? What does the Bible say they did when they heard God walking in the garden? They fled. They hid. Why did they hide? Because they knew He was holy and they had sinned. It's, it's the sense of shame we all know. And, and with that sense of shame that we all know, the manifestation of our unrighteousness, we don't want to come to a holy God. We're embarrassed. We're ashamed to come to Him. That's why he has to initiate the call. And so he does so in the garden. So nobody's going to believe anything until God initiates the call. God's call to Abraham to leave pagan culture and start a new counterculture clearly shows his initiative. This call to fallen sinners is a prerequisite to saving faith. Turn to Romans 10:17. Here's a clear verse that tells a prerequisite for faith. We've seen one. Let's list these so we can think about them. We know that one of them is God's gracious call. Picture calling Adam and Eve out of the bushes. Easy to remember, right? 
Do you see Adam and Eve in the bushes? So think about that. Second thing, Romans 10:17. How does faith come? It comes by hearing the word of God. It doesn't come because we have some religious ritual that's unexplained. It doesn't come because we have some boom-boom music and we're not thinking about the lyrics. It doesn't come because we join the church basketball team. It comes because of the Word of God. The word, faith has to have a what? Faith has to have an object. And when we talk about this kind of faith, what is the object of saving faith? It's God expressed through His Word. Because where else do you meet Him? Except by His Word. Think about it. Garden again. Simple illustration. Adam and Eve in the bushes. And God calls to them and says, Adam, why are you there? Or where are you? Or why are you there? Is that the Word of God? Yeah. And what does that reveal about God? That God still thinks enough of me to call me. I sinned. I don't deserve it. I don't marry it. But you know, He thinks enough of me to call me. That word from God is what we're talking about. It has content and it shows the heart of the one who's speaking. Okay, that's the second thing we have. We have the Word of God that calls faith into existence. Three. That, by the way, is why we study the Word of God. I don't know how many people I've met in my life who, in the middle of a crisis, usually death, I have heard say, sometimes to me, sometimes to someone you know, in the room, you know, if I hadn't taken in the Word of God when I was well, when I had the time, I would never have made it through this. Because when I got involved in this situation, this crisis, this dying episode, the pain level was so great, I couldn't even concentrate on the Word of God. I couldn't take in any more of the Word of God. Those days were gone. But the Holy Spirit took the Word of God that I had put in here and, and kept me going. I was operating off the juices in my battery. And that's the Word of God stored in your soul from just taking in it. You may come to the, hear preaching. It may be dull. It may put you to sleep. You just keep on discipline. Keep on hearing. Keep on listening. Keep on taking it in over and over and over and over. And because you haven't had a crisis in the last three weeks doesn't mean it's not going to work. You just keep on taking it in over and over. Repetition again and again and again and again. So that when your thing hits, when you have a problem, You've got some storage juices. Something's in there. Because otherwise you can't believe. The emotions take over. Pain takes over. You can't concentrate. And you've lost it. What keeps you going is what's there. You can't do a Bible study in the middle of a gunfight someplace. It's all over by that time. So that's what we mean. The second point, the thing we need is the Word of God. Third thing we need, God controls the time and the manner of the call, 
calling louder to some and less to others. Matthew 11.20. Let's look at this passage. This is a rather sobering passage. Matthew 11. This is the Lord Jesus in the midpoint of his ministry when the nation was begun to turn against him. God controls the time and the manner. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. And Jesus began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because he didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Oh, now what's the implication of that passage? That had God come in the person of Jesus to Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. So see, this verse starts opening up this thing about God calls louder to some people and less loud to others. Why does he do that? I don't know why he does that. Ask him. That's just what the scriptures say. It's a mystery. And we're left with that. God calls louder to some people. Just be very thankful he called you. I am. I know why he called me. But I'm just thankful he did. Because here, think of all the people in Tyre and Sidon. Think of what it's going to be in eternity when those people see the people at Chorazin and Bethsaida. And they say, you stupid idiots. You had the Son of God walk right down your street and you rejected him. What a group of jerks you were. And this is going to be their response. Now, we didn't have that much revelation. We're accountable. We rejected the knowledge we had. But you jokers, you know, the spotlight was turned on. You had high voltage. You had your glasses on. You saw this whole thing and you still rejected it. What's with you people? That's what Jesus is saying in here. So, the third thing, the third point, is that there are degrees of calling. And we don't understand that. We want it all to be equal. We're good Democrats, little d. Thus, the extent of the atonement rests upon the intent of the Creator, which is not open for viewing at the present time. The extent of the atonement rests upon the intent of the Creator, and that is not open for viewing. Reformed thought speculates when it hypothesizes about divine decrees using abstract reasoning from effect to cause. But I think it goes beyond the Scripture. It goes too far. It has to speculate on some sort of design structure that God had. We're not told that much in Scripture about His design structure that He had in eternity past. Likewise, Arminian thought speculates when it hypothesizes about election based on some sort of preview knowledge of man's free will exercised in a virtual vacuum independent of God's creation. In other words, God sees these people in the abstract and says, gee, if I give him charge of three and a half volts, he'll believe. So I'll elect him. This person I put four volts on, he doesn't believe. I don't elect him. But to make God 
passive like that moves sovereignty from him to whom? The people who are responding. Now you've got sovereignty in the wrong place. So both sides of this controversy have a problem here. And that's why your Bible-believing fundamentalists tend to be kind of, we hold to eternal security, but we don't go all the way with the Reformed thought about all this divine decree business because we don't know. Okay, so conclusion, point six, the extent of the atonement. Like the blood on the doors of Egypt, the atonement covers all who receive it from God's eternal wrath. It does not, however, cover all sin. Here's another aspect of where the atonement's limited. It doesn't cover the curse upon mankind in Eden. Now think about that. And you know, that carries implications we'll see next year when we get into the life, Christian life and the epistles. That's why you have this exchanged life. The reason for the basis for the exchanged life going on is because the life of Adam remains unatoned for. You don't want to use that to generate righteousness because it's still under the condemnation of Eden. So it doesn't cover the curse upon mankind in Eden because a new human race in Christ has been created to which we are translated and in which we are adopted. See, those aren't accidental terms. The New Testament is serious about those terms. Mortal flesh dies regardless of the atonement. The present earth remains cursed regardless of the atonement. Believers can be judged for their works both in this life and upon entrance into the next. Judged in this life corporally, judged in the atonement by the rewards issue. It doesn't cover the sin of final unbelief. These are ways in which the atonement is limited. On the other hand, the atonement, like the blood in the doors in Egypt, is for all who will come. It is the basis on which God forbears from consummating the separation of good from evil, for allowing days of grace for men to seek him. It has become the new reason for eternal condemnation of all who disbelieve. These are the ways in which the atonement is unlimited. So it seems to me to answer the issue of the atonement and its extent, you have to get down to the particulars. Where and what? What aspect are you talking about to say it's limited or unlimited? If you do that, I think it helps. It doesn't totally solve the problem. But that, I think, is God's in, uh, his incomprehensiveness. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. And we thank you for the death of the Lord Jesus. And as we reflect upon this in the words of that Islamic teacher, we're reminded of the uniqueness of our faith. We're reminded of what we have been given and millions and millions of people in the world don't have and don't share. And that is that the Lord Jesus Christ has died for sin. He has died for all sin. He has died a sufficient atonement. He has died such that it can be offered to every man and woman and child. May we appreciate what we have in this blood atonement before your holiness. In Christ's name, amen. I've tried to uh, kind of summarize, because I know a lot of people asked questions last time about the atonement. A difficult thing, and I was just talking to a Mike Divine, how in this area it seems like he says, because he's, he's a, a, not a newcomer, but he's like me, he's moved into the area from other places. And he says, this place is a hotbed of reformed thought. 
uh, and it is. Um, it's a lot of you, George, in your workplace. And he was, Mike was just saying, you know, he says, it's just tough uh, because they will often say that faith is a gift because, because of doctrine of total depravity. Obviously, if you're totally depraved, then uh, if you have this concept of total depravity and in the sense of you're totally dead and incapable, then in order to get faith, you have to be given a gift. And they'll often take Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 for his gift of God. You know. Well, I don't think that's necessary in the text there. I think the gift is salvation, not faith. And you do have to go back to the text in the New Testament. that says you never see it say love and be saved. It doesn't say hope and be saved. It says believe and be saved. So there's something unique about this verb, this command to believe. Now somehow, <laughs> we're fallen beings, we are depraved, but God calls us and he expects us to respond. Now in that mystery, I have no idea what goes on. And it's just like Mike says, well that's awful tough in the middle of a conversation because, because you wind up saying, well I don't know. And, but what else can we say? We can't peer into the heart of God and say, and explain it. Because every time we do, we wind up going off on a tangent someplace. And, why, and I, you know, I mean, look at, look at the, where some, some people go that can't evangelize anymore because they're not sure the atonement covers the person they're talking to about Christ. And there's something wrong with that. And then there's something wrong with a person who says, well, it's all up to man. And if man decides to disbelieve, he loses his salvation. Huh? See? So we're back to this, this point about God's incomprehensibility. And we have to say that, that man's choice, man's belief, um, whatever belief is, um, the problem, I think, with a strong reform position is that it views us as incapacitated, totally incapacitated, and we are in need of a new capacity to believe. And I think what's going on here is that in principle, sin does incapacitate. But God woos that. And beyond that, I don't know how far, I don't know how to go beyond that point. Yes, Debbie. Um, and this is just a casual looking at it, but in Romans, the middle section, it's like not in danger of, of, of 
Well, there's several elections in Scripture, and that's the thing. Um, remember, this is why I think it's so important when you talk about election. What, where in our framework have we learned that that idea first really appears in history? It appears when Abraham was called out of the pagan world. You don't find that in, in really reveal much until the call of Abraham. And at that point, God had a plan for history, and Abraham was going to play a role in that. So here's, that's one election. God calls Abraham out. And we know, of course, that's the messianic line that he's calling out there. We have the call in Romans of Isaac and Jacob. Esau and Jacob. Uh, Isaac and Ishmael. And the, the sacred line. What he's trying to show there is that the line of belief in Israel... It wasn't just racial Jews. It was elect Jews were those who believed. And there's that fine line, and it was that elect remnant. So yes, you're right. In the context of that discussion in Romans, it's talking about the election of the remnant. But, but still, there's this other election is expanded beyond that. For example, in Ephesians 1, you're elect in Christ before the foundation of the world. So it applies all over, and I think it's because election is just simply saying God chooses. It's His choice. And for me, what I do is I back up a bit and just say, because God chose to write history the way He wrote it. Now, I try to visualize God as an author, and I think we can all identify with that. If you were to sit down and write a novel, would you have your characters in the novel freely choose? Yeah, because you were writing it. And in the story down below you, you're here. You're the author. And your, your, your characters interact. They love, they hate, they do this, they do that, and so on. You're manipulating them in the sense that you set up the whole story. But yet, it's a story that's real, that mimics reality, in that these people do interact in your novel. So there's real interaction going on between the characters, but you're the one that authored the whole thing. Well, in some strange parallel way, God is the author of history, and he's put the drama together, and we all interact, we choose, we reject, we believe, we disbelieve, and the story goes on. But it's his story. We don't do anything that he didn't write the script to. Because if you don't hold to that, now you've got God and something else going so you've got to have that. God controls every aspect of it. Now, how he controls it, and we have these, these interactions going on. And how do we explain that Matthew 11 passage? That, you know, Jesus said, had I showed up, 
and walked down the streets of Tyre and Sidon, I would have got a response. Well, now the next question you want to ask is, well, why didn't God, if he knew that they were going to respond to more revelation, why didn't he give it? Didn't. His choice. Now, Paul in Romans 3 points out when he says uh, that uh, he has that passage in Romans 3. Remember where it says the beginning of the chapter, uh, Oh, you who say that our unrighteousness brings forth the righteousness of God, why does God yet hold us blameful? Why does he yet blame us? Now, that would have been the perfect opportunity for Paul to explain himself. But you notice the next verse, what he did? He says, That's foolishness. How else would God judge the world? It almost sounds like he's copped out of an opportunity to explain himself. But in second thought, it was a brilliant answer. Because he says, if you hold to the fact that your sin, because your sin stimulates, you know, God is gracious to your sin, so therefore won't you sin some more so you can get more grace. He says, if that were true, then how can God hold you accountable at the end of history? See, he can't play two games at the same time. The game we know that he's playing is that we're all held accountable to his standard at the end, end time. So that's what Paul's final answer is. God holds you accountable. And he holds you judgeable. It's just like we saw with Jesus, that it was impossible for Jesus to sin, but Jesus was tempted to sin. Now, how do we resolve that one? And you keep getting into this. And what Debbie was pointing out, in Romans 11, at the end of that hard stuff, Romans 9, 10, 11, which is, Debbie's true, pointing out in context, it's talking about the Jewish remnant problem, the partitioning of Israel. But down, when you get to the end of Romans 11, it's so, um, it's so uh, edifying and instructive to realize that he goes through all this deep discussion and then what does he say? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And then he says, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And that's where I've learned over the years to stop right there. And I don't think I'm copping out because I haven't heard anybody give an explanation that winds up any closer to Scripture than that. In the end, Paul has to say, at the end of this chapter, two things. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And I think that that's the modus operandi we have to operate on. It bothers us because theologically we want to know these details. But isn't this the same thing? I was talking to Mike just before we start here. Isn't that the same thing that in everyday Christian life, forgetting the theology for a moment, you know, as a theology student we want to know all these things. Let's, come, let's shift a minute and come on over to everyday life. Something happens to you. Maybe a big thing or a little thing, frustrating thing or something else. In all honesty, do you know why that happened to you? Why did it happen to you this moment? You got a, a, you know, a phone, a cell phone, and call up God and find out, well, what'd you do that for me today? I mean, sometimes it does become clear, you know, a reflection of it. But you know, usually, in everyday Christian living, that's not the case. And you go sliding right on through it, because what do you know? You know that he is righteous, and that he is just, and he has his reasons. The couples can lose a baby. Mother can see her kids shot. 
spinal meningitis at Towson. Wipe your kid out. You know, you, you, you put, put money through college. You raise a kid. He's 18, 19, or she. And in 48 hours, they're dead. You're looking at their casket from this little lower life form. Now, how come that happened? Well, we know the broad outlines of why it happened, because we live in a fallen universe. But if we push it back and say, well, why did God create a story with a fall in it? Well, I don't know why he created a story with a fall in it. But he did. And he has a good reason for it. And it goes back to that Job thing. I had occasion with one of my sons recently going through a crisis with him, and I asked him to read the book of Job. And he did. <laughs> that was a miracle. Um, and he actually read the book through, cut down the end chapter. And I said, son, do you see? At the end of this book, after Job gets creamed, you'd think that God would come up to him and kind of pet him and stroke him and say, gee, Job, you know, you really had a hard time, boy. But when God shows up in 37, he's showing up in the middle of a tornado, stuff flying all over the place, and then he gives him a, a, an SAT on the nature of the universe. And you wonder, for crying out loud, what kind of counseling grace is that that God's showing? Remember we dealt with that one, the suffering? And the only explanation I have for that is when we're in those situations, we need some rigidity. We need some firmness. Because our emotions are just going all over the place and blah, blah. And, and, and what God does, he starts asking questions. What happens when someone asks you a question instead of preaching to you? There's two ways, you know. Somebody can tell you something or somebody can ask you a question. Women are a lot better at asking questions, I think, than men. And by asking a question, what happens up here? It starts at working. And that's what God wants us to do. Start at working. Go back to what I've told you before. Claim the promises. You remember what I said? A thousand times you sang that hymn. Eight thousand times you read the scripture. Got it going yet, guy? And that's what he wants. And questions do it. So I think that's why he deals with it. But in the end, do you remember Job's conclusion? I got words without knowledge. And he shuts his mouth. And he knows no more about why he got creamed in the last chapter than he did in the first chapter. But what is the difference? He has that assurance in his heart that God's for him. God, he's, he's, he, you know, he might have doubted that God had his best will in mind, but somehow the act of God just talking to him, talking to him through his word, gave him all he needed, gave him the gas that he needed to go on the next mile. Because he had the assurance that, okay, everything's cool, I'm in charge, I got my reasons, trust me. And that's hard to do. But when we talk theology, we forget that. We use that technique every single day in our Christian life, and we come over and want to know the extent of the atonement, and all of a sudden we drop all that, and now we want a complete explanation. And it's no more available here than it is over here. So that's why I'm content with, I come to the end and I say, God isn't comprehensible, and I'm not ashamed to say that. Sorry. Okay? Well, our time is up, and next week we're going to start the resurrection.